You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Today's sermon focuses on the apostles speaking in other tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. In preparation for the passage in Acts, let us first turn to two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis 11, the first nine verses, which is the story of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And we'll turn to Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. When men worshipped the dragon because he had, had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those, all whose Names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The text for this morning's sermon is in Acts 2, the second half of verse 4. The text itself is the last half of verse 4, but we'll read uh, the first 12 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, 
A crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? So the text is the second half of verse 4, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, the Lord, there are so many questions. There is so much confusion around the event known as Pentecost. Take only the matter brought up in our text, the matter of speaking in other tongues. What is this? How are we to understand it? Or a more fundamental question, why did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit result in speaking of tongues? Speaking in tongues. Should we be speaking in tongues? These questions need answers. They need answers, scriptural answers, because the Pentecostal movement around us says, yes, every true believer must speak in tongues as the saints did on Pentecost Day. Moreover, these questions need answers, scriptural answers, because the Lord God never does anything without a reason. There is a reason why the Lord caused his disciples to speak in other tongues on the day the Spirit was poured out. In fact, brothers and sisters, here is revelation from God. Through making the disciples speak in other tongues on Pentecost Day, the Lord God tells us something, something important for us and for our salvation. That revelation is this. The disciples and the church of all ages are told that the salvation Christ obtained is for peoples of every tongue, tribe, and nation. More, Christ brings unity among a divided mankind. This morning's sermon, written by the Reverend Clarence Bauman of the Yarrow Church, has this theme. On Pentecost Day, the outpoured spirit caused the disciples to speak foreign languages. First, the reason for the foreign languages, and second, the spirit of unity. I mentioned in the theme that the disciples spoke foreign languages. Those of you who are aware of what goes on in Pentecostal circles will note that I have not adopted the standard Pentecostal understanding of this text. For that circle of people is convinced that the speaking in tongues mentioned in our text implies that the disciples entered into some state of ecstasy so that they began to utter all kinds of sounds understandable to none but God himself. More, through these mysterious vocalizations, the disciples were praising God. These Pentecostals see a parallel event in 1 Corinthians 14, where speaking in tongues is indeed presented as a gift God gave to the church in Corinth. Yet, as it turns out, brothers and sisters, there is not a direct connection between Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Just as the sound like the blowing of a violent wind and the appearance of what seemed to be tongues of fire was a one-time event restricted to the moment of the Spirit's outpouring, so also this speaking in tongues, as mentioned in Acts 2, was a one-time event restricted to the moment of the Spirit's outpouring. That should become clearer as we move along this morning. The first four verses of Acts 2 list a number of successive events. The action on Pentecost Day begins with God himself. Out of nowhere, there arose suddenly a particular sound, like the blowing of a violent wind. That particular sound was followed by a unique sight, 
what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. These two signs together were evidence that the Holy Spirit had been poured out and so led to the conclusion recorded in the first part of verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. It is after we are told that the Spirit made his home in the disciples that we are informed of the presence of the response of the disciples to this miracle. God in the Spirit has come to men, is now pleased to dwell within sinners. And what is the reaction of sinners to this initial coming of God to live in them? That initial response is told to us in the words of our text. The reaction of these believers on Pentecost Day is that they began to speak in other tongues. Yet this was not a response that arose from within themselves. This, we know, was rather a response prompted by the outpoured Holy Spirit. For Luke hath hastens to add the last words of our text, as the Spirit enabled them. And that leaves us with questions. Is this response to the Spirit's presence not odd? Would singing and dancing with joy not have been a more fitting response to the marvel of Pentecost, of God coming to live with men? Or would prophesying or preaching to the people about God's mighty deeds not have been more appropriate, or even evangelizing? Why is speaking in other tongues the response which the Spirit prompted? As those gathered asked, what does this mean? To get an answer to our question, brothers and sisters, we should find out first what it is meant by the phrase, speak in other tongues. I mentioned already that our text does not refer to some unintelligible speech, as is lauded by the Pentecostals, and apparently present for a while in Corinth. We are to note that Luke uses in our text a specific formulation. He does not write, speak in tongues, as Paul does when he writes about the unintelligible sounds made by the Corinthian believers. Luke rather says, speak in other tongues. That phrase, other tongues, happens to be a standard expression referring to foreign languages. The fact that recognizable foreign languages is meant by the words of our text is further demonstrated by the remarks made by the audience. Verse 6, each one heard the disciples speaking in his own language. Verse 8, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The point of our text is this. These simple disciples from Galilee were speaking in Egyptian, in Latin, in Parthian, etc. Instead of speaking the language of their youth, these uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, whatever they were, were verbalizing sounds, finding words, and making sentences in languages they had never studied, in languages they had never spoken before. In short, here's a miracle prompted by the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, once more, the question arises, why is speaking in foreign languages the response of the disciples to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Or better, why does the outpoured Spirit prompt the disciples to respond in this way to the miracle of Pentecost? To get an answer to this question, we shall have to look into the Old Testament. What does the, old, what does the Lord say in the Old Testament about foreign languages? So we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 11. We know the events recorded in this chapter, which we read uh, this morning. 
After the flood, people migrated from the mountains of Ararat to the plains of Shinar in what is today Iraq. On this plain, they determined to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. The Lord, however, was displeased with this development and so put an end to it by confusing their speech, creating new languages. That's Genesis 11. Yet, congregation, to get a handle on this matter of languages, we shall have to go further into Genesis 11. What, at bottom, prompted this confusion of speech? What was so wrong with that tower building? And why did God disrupt that building project, specifically by confusing their languages? In paradise, the Lord God gave to mankind the mandate to have dominion over all creation. God's intent, though, was not that those two people, Adam and Eve, should control and cultivate all creation. It was through being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth that mankind would be able to have dominion over all creation. After the fall into sin, the command to have dominion, and so also to fill the earth, remained. God, after all, promised redemption and renewal so that fallen man would be able to exercise dominion again. In the years after the fall, however, the redemption God granted was rejected by the human race. Yes, after the fall, men multiplied, and yes, men had dominion over creation. There was, for example, a Lamech whose three sons discovered the secrets of tent dwelling, of musical instruments, and of iron making in Genesis 4. But man's dominion was very much anti-God. The human race developed a world empire with no room for the Creator. That, in turn, threatened the coming of Jesus Christ. And so it was that the Lord sent the flood to destroy that race of apostates. After the flood, the Lord God renewed his covenant with mankind. To Noah and his sons, God repeated the instruction given to Adam in the beginning, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's Genesis 9, verses 1 and 7. The command remained to have dominion, to steward and to cultivate the earth. And therefore also the command remained to fill the earth, to spread out over all the earth. And again, why should men have that dominion? Why fill the earth? It was all to be done so that the way could be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. That command to fill the earth was needful so that the promised Savior could one day come. But what do people do? This, they decline to fill the earth. Altogether, they leave the mountains of Ararat, and altogether they migrate to Mesopotamia and determine to settle together in the fertile land of Shinar. Yes, they develop the earth, have dominion according to God's command, for they find out how to, how to make bricks and how to make mortar, but they use their new abilities not to spread out, to fill the earth, to have dominion over all of it, and so prepare the way for Christ. They use their abilities instead to build for themselves a city, and in the city, a tower with its top in the heavens. And why that tower? Genesis 11, verse 4, so that we should not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Shinar was a plain, was flat, and as such did not have natural landmarks so that that could be seen from miles away. That was then the purpose of the tower, to have a landmark so that hunters and travelers could find the way back home, would not get lost. Yet what is this? This mentality is nothing else than unbelief. God had said, spread out all the worlds for you. And because God was God, each individual who loved this God 
irrespective of where he was on the face of the earth, could know himself safe in God's gracious hands. But the people of Genesis 11 did not trust God to care for them, did not feel safe in spreading out and being dependent on God for protection and food. They felt far more secure in togetherness. And togetherness, with its resulting security, was very much a possibility. They were, after all, one people with one language. This unbelief, this refusal to trust in God and so obey him, in turn endangered the coming of the promised Savior. There we have also the reason why God responded as he did. Says the Lord, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. That's God's response. Create various languages. Multiple languages would break man's unity, would drive people apart. And that's what happened. The one builder no longer understood the other. The one accused the other of having gravel in his mouth. So working together and living together became impossible. In frustration with each other, they quit building and parted ways, spreading out in every direction. One language became many languages. One people became many peoples, many tribes. Over time, the many tribes developed their different customs, different traditions, different values. The one human race became divided into countless pockets of people who no longer understood each other. From now on, nations stood over against nation, tribe over against tribe, tongue over against tongue. And in the course of history, one consumes the other in passion and war. Of the various nations that arose from this confusion, generated because of unbelief at the Tower of Babel, there was only one which God was pleased to choose for himself. Said the Lord to Israel, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7. So it was that God revealed his word to Jacob. He has done this for no other nation. Psalm 147. Yet why did the Lord choose that one people for himself? No, not because God was interested in this one people alone. Rather, God said to Abram in Genesis 12, All peoples on earth, every tongue and nation, will be blessed through you. God chose Abram, made his covenant with the people of Israel, so that through Israel he might reach the nations. You see, God divided the peoples at Babel so that he might break the power of their unbelief might keep open the way for Christ still to come. And God wanted Christ still to come for the benefit of the nations. In the course of time, the promised Savior was born in Israel. On the cross, he satisfied for sin, died, arose again, ascended into heaven, as we celebrated last week. The throne he received did not give him power over Israel alone. The throne he received on the day of his ascension gave him sovereignty over all the world, over every tribe and tongue and nation. Why? Because the redemption he obtained was not meant for Israel alone, but for all nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. His triumph on the cross was to benefit many peoples from every tribe and tongue. Men should be reconciled to God. More, the divisions and antagonisms generated by unbelief should be removed removed so that peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation 
can again be one people, one new race in Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, is indicated by the response of the disciples to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is the reason why the Holy Spirit prompts the Galilean disciples to respond to his arrival, not with singing and dancing, but rather with speaking Latin, Egyptian, Parthian, Phrygian, etc. In this speaking, in other tongues, it was announced to all who had ears to hear that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles was being broken down. It was announced to all that the saving work of Jesus Christ was universal in scope, was geared to men and women of every language, of every race, and every culture. As such, the foreign languages spoken on that first Pentecost day were a prophecy of the countless languages that would be used by the missionaries of later years to bring God's saving word to every tribe under heaven. Here, then, was also gospel for people who yet lived in darkness. The word of life would no longer be restricted to Hebrew, no longer be directed only to that one people, Israel. Jews and Greeks, Parthians and Medes, Cretans and Arabs, Chinese and Koreans, Dutch and Canadian, all would one day hear the mighty works of God in the sounds of their native language. That, in turn, means, too, that the divisions and antagonisms that have characterized the relations between peoples and tribes since the days of Babel should also come to an end. The preaching of the gospel, after all, leads to faith, and faith to renewal, to receiving a new heart, a heart that loves God and therefore loves the neighbor, too. It is that renewal worked by the gospel, that new love for God and the neighbor, that leads to swords being beaten into plowshares in Isaiah 2, that leads to peace among men of various races and tongues and cultures. The speaking in tongues of Genesis 11 drove people apart, but the speaking in tongues of Acts 2 draws people together. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, that spirit of Jesus Christ who works faith in men of unbelief, who applies to sinners the salvation obtained by Christ on the cross. Then the world, brothers and sisters, may pursue peace among men, may strive for unity amongst men as as the way to peace. The Assyrians of the Old Testament tried it. So did the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, as well as the Medes and the Persians. World empires they built, one empire under one ruler, All tribes and languages united under one sovereign. And the idea was to ensure that tribes would fight no longer, that peoples would live instead together in in harmony for mutual benefit. The Greeks tried it too, and so did the Romans in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. But each in turn discovered to their dismay that differing languages implied division, implied that the various peoples, even those gathered into one empire, were still inherently divided amongst each other. So each empire, in turn, collapsed, fragmented into so many tribes and tongues. Yet, despite these failures in the Old Testament dispensation, despite the gospel of unity announced on Pentecost Day, efforts would again be made to melt the tribes and tongues of earth into one soup. The Apostle John, imprisoned on Patmos by the authorities of the Roman Empire, is told by none other than the Christ of Pentecost that this kind of striving to unity will characterize the New Testament dispensation, will continue to characterize this dispensation, even though the only way to unity was revealed on the day the Spirit was poured out. For John was shown a vision, as we read, of a beast rising out of the sea, 
a beast to whom was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What is this beast? It stands for a world empire of an authority that strives to bind people together, to bind them together despite that division that inherently exists among men because of the division into so many languages. Such is the prophecy of the Christ of Pentecost. And behold, how this prophecy has come to pass. The past century alone has seen a number of such efforts to unity. Think of Hitler. All nations and languages should be bound together into one under the sovereignty of the German people. There was a Lenin and a Stalin. The tribes and tongues of northern Asia and eastern Europe should be gathered into one people. There was the effort first of the League of Nations and then of the United Nations. All the peoples of the world should be brought together, should be made to understand each other, appreciate each other, help each other, should all be one. Inherent in all of this is a rejection of what God said at Babel, a refusal to accept the fact that God scattered men, set them against each other. And all of it is a rejection, too, of the gospel of Pentecost, that gospel that announces that there is but one way to reach unity among sinful men, and that is by renewal of the heart through the Holy Spirit. But what says Jesus to John about the survival of the beast? That beast, says Jesus, shall not ultimately triumph, but, as we read in Revelation 17, shall instead go to destruction. For unity amongst the various tribes and tongues of the world, there cannot be, simply because God in Genesis 11 set nation against nation, tongue against tongue. And such is indeed what we have seen time and again. What is left of Hitler's Germany, and what's left of Lenin's Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and have the United Nations in the 65 years of its existence been able to draw people together to reduce friction, to foster understanding and peace? Unity among men there cannot be, beloved. And yet, there can be, for the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ has been poured out, that spirit of renewal, that spirit of unity. Indeed, unity is there already. No, it's not a unity that's recorded in the press. It's rather a unity that's apparent only to the eye of faith, a unity that's confessed Sunday by Sunday. For this is what we, by the grace of God, may believe. One Catholic Church, a church not confined or limited to one particular people, a church not confined to one language, but a church that spread throughout the entire world, made up of peoples from numerous tribes and tongues and nations, a church that is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. That's the new people, the one people of God. This one people speaks today already one language, the one language of faith. This is the people that John saw, that great multitude which no man could number, that multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The church together, united in faith, that's the promise of Pentecost through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.